We are uh, launching our new series, will be summer series, exploring the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm very excited about that. Um, so if, you, if you're a hard copy Bible person, you brought it, turn there. Uh, there's some still in the room. We need to get those back out if you want to do that, or I guess turn it on. Some of you do that too. No shame in that. Uh, if you're not familiar with where uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a really small book, and so it's based like in the middle of your Bible. Just use your table of contents. No shame in that. It's okay. Preachers use table of contents all the time to find stuff. So um, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's right in the middle of the Bible, in the middle of all the, the other wisdom literature that the Scripture has. Before we start, before I read, and I'm going to kind of parse it up as we go um, this morning, I want to give a preface to it, because Ecclesiastes is a bit different, especially given that we've been doing Matthew for a long time. This is a big change up. Um, it's, it's a lot different than other books of the Bible. This is no historical narrative, and I'm just doing this in case you're unfamiliar with it. I don't think Ecclesiastes is a book the typical evangelical gravitates towards. Um, and so I just want to give you a heads up. It's, it's, not, it's not a historical narrative. It's not telling some grand story of God's people. It's, not, um, it's no letter parsing up like Christian doctrines. It's not like a, an epistle that's writing to a particular church or a group of churches with addressing a particular problem. Um, here's the way you read it because I want to kind of give you a heads up, because I would encourage you, please, read it. Like, go home. You can read it in, in an hour. I mean, honestly, it's a short book. Um, and so you could read it like once a week as we go throughout the series, and you will get so much out of it if you do that. But read it like it's a sermon, because that's basically what it is. Or better yet, even maybe what's more helpful is it's like a conversation. It's, it's a conversation with a, a very wise, a studied person, um, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a sermon from a profound preacher having a conversation with you or preaching a sermon to you. Imagine it, think of it like this. Imagine you've got, um, imagine you're sitting in a restaurant with a group of professors, really wise, weathered, experienced, well-read, the most brilliant philosopher uh, professors you could ever imagine. They're all sitting in a booth with you. One of those professors is named is Proverbs. One of those professors' names is Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, if your Bible translation uses that. One of the professors' names is Job, and one of the professors' names is Ecclesiastes. And they're both, and you ask each professor, hey, based on everything you've learned, how do you approach life? What do you think life is like? How do you, how do you think we should look out on the life that we have currently? Job, the professor Job would say something like, life is tragedy. Life is tragedy. Uh, Professor Proverbs would say, life is patterns. It's patterns and rules. Um, Professor Song of Solomon would say, life is love. Life is love. Professor Ecclesiastes would say, life is boring. <laughs> life is frustrating. And that's kind of... And the Bible would tell you, if you want to be wise, you actually need all of those perspectives. All of them. If you're like, well, what about the Psalms? Because isn't the Psalms wisdom literature? It is. So that one would say, life is prayer and singing. I'll warn you, I'll warn you, it's an uncomfortable book. I want to get that. If you've never read it, I want to warn you. 
You need to sign a, a kind of a waiver before you get into this book. It's an uncomfortable book. It talks a lot like your skeptic family member or your skeptic friend. Um, it can feel depressing. Welcome to church, everybody, if you're visiting. Uh, it can feel dark at times. But let me tell you, it is the perfect book for the modern man and the modern woman. It's the perfect book. Um, if you want to dive deeper into it, I will say, uh, for a, like an accessible, there's a lot of great books, but for an accessible reading into it, if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, Living Life Backwards by David Gibson's great. Uh, it's pretty, it's an it's a easy read. Uh, Benjamin Shaw's book, Ecclesiastes, Life in a Fallen World, is a great read, simple, accessible. For a more technical reading, Why Everything Matters by Philip Ryken, also a great book. If you, if you, if you really want to do more poetic reading, I would say Zach Eswine's Recovering Eden is also a great resource. I, I read it so much, it's, it's in Kindle format for me, so I don't have it up here. Um, but those are great resources. Come to me if you want them. Um, but it is the perfect book. Uh, as Peter Kreef says, the philosopher, for the modern man. It's why, for instance, Herman Melville wrote in the 97th chapter of Moby Dick, the truest of all books is Ecclesiastes. Uh, the great American novelist Thomas Wolfe, he wrote this, quote, of all that I have ever seen or learned, that book seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth, and also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I am not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could only say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound. The observations and questions in Ecclesiastes remind me of one of my favorite Andrew Bird songs uh, called So Much Wine. The chorus goes like this. Um, I'll try not to sing it because I know the song so well. Uh, the chorus goes, Listen to me, butterfly. There's only so much wine that you can drink in one life, but it will never be enough to save you from the bottom of your glass. Ecclesiastes is a sermon saying, Let's be honest. There isn't enough wine to save you from the bottom of your class. The bottom of your heart, the core of your longings, the core of your frustrations, the core of your boredom. Okay, so my, did I depress you yet? Let's read. Um, hopefully, my, my goal here is just simply to whet your appetite for the book as we get into it. Um, and what we're going to do differently this morning is I'll we'll just as we read it, um, I'll do some kind of running commentary to kind of make us sit with it because it's easy to just glance over it. Um, so starting at the very uh, first verse uh, of Ecclesiastes chapter one, here's what it says: the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, so stop right there. <laughs> like we didn't get very far. Who's writing this? You know, it's a basic question we should always ask as we dive into the Bible. Who's writing this? Many, of course, say it's King Solomon, given that it says the son of David, son of David being Solomon. Many say that. Uh, king Solomon was the richest and wisest king to ever rule, according to the Bible. Uh, just so you know, actually, the majority of modern scholars don't believe that. Um, but that's okay. Don't, don't panic. Um, 
some of them say that because there's some strange things here. Here at the beginning, in the opening lines, as well as towards the end, it, the language changes up, and it's almost as if someone is narrating it for Solomon. So some would say that it's actually kind of this uh, literary thought experiment. It's like a fictional autobiography. Uh, someone writing it to you in the hopes that your imagination will think of it as Solomon talking to you. So I, what I would say to you is, uh, as someone who nerds out on stuff like that, I would say it doesn't matter. You're meant, the one thing that I think most scholars will agree upon is you are meant to read the teaching in it, read the sermon as if it is Solomon speaking it to you. So just receive it that way. So if you would like to just think of it as Solomon, that's absolutely acceptable. So then he goes into his major statement right at the beginning, which is a very strange line for the Bible. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or your translation might be meaningless, meaningless. Or maybe your translation says, uh, 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 what is it, futile. So let's define terms because actually this isn't a really, really important word, an important line of the whole book. This word vanity is the central theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used around 38 times in this book. The literal word in Hebrew is havel, havel. Havel, havel, it's all havel. All of life is havel. What is havel? Havel literally means vapor, breath, smoke. It's poetry. It's poetic language. It's meant to stop you, slow you down, get you to think. A lot of us don't like poetry because we just don't understand it. But what poetry, why, the reason why poetry is beautiful and the reason why it's so helpful when you're getting into contemplation, reflection, these things, is it's, it wants to say so much more by using less words. So what do you know about vapor or smoke? Just stop and think about it. Uh, it's vapor, smoke. Imagine you're sitting next to a campfire. The smoke is coming up. What do you notice about the smoke coming up from the campfire? One, it's fleeting, isn't it? It floats up. It's obviously noticeable. But then it dissipates. At some point, you know, or you're out, you're out on a cold day. Your breath comes out. You can see it. But for how long? So quick, and then it's gone. It vanishes. Where does it go? I don't know. Right? It's fleeting. Two, smoke, breath, vapor. It's an enigma. Here's what I mean. It, like, it's, it's paradoxical, actually, when you think about it. So here's a fire. I wish I could make one right here. It's coming up. Is it a thing? The smoke? You can see it, right? Yes. Can you grab it? No. It, it's elusive. You can't do anything with it. And then it disappears. But you know it's real, right? Yes, it's real. But you can't control it. Can you? No matter how you try, it just slips through your fingers. Thirdly, it's, it's unpredictable. Vapor, breath, these things. I mean, I suppose smoke, if we're thinking of smoke, it goes in the direction of the wind. But which way is the wind blowing? Can you control that? You can't be certain. If you've ever sat around a campfire with the sting in your eyes, you know how true this is. So the preacher 
in his very opening line of this book, this sermon, he's saying life is smoke. It's smoke. It's all smoke. Everything. It's fleeting. It's puzzling. It's unpredictable. Life is like that, and it leaves us frustrated. It's frustrating to us because we're meaning makers and we're control freaks, and we don't know what to do with it. To prove his point, he asks a question, a question that's central to the whole book. This is a critical question that you have to keep in your mind as you read the rest of the entire book. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil, all his work, all your work, at which he toils under the sun? What do you profit from all your labor? Showering, getting dressed, going to work, feeding the kids, getting them off to school, saving your money cutting your lawn, whatever it is that you do that's labor, what do you get from all of it? Really? Stop and think about it. Now, here's the thing. You're Bible people. I'm going to assume that about you. Or at least you're church people and you're Christian people. This is where church people, Bible people, we expect the question to be followed up by a comment on God, His majesty, His glory, all of that. Everything that he wants to offer us in his son, Jesus, the teacher does not go there. This preacher has the audacity to not mention it at all right here. To be clear, the preacher does believe in God. He'll mention God at times. Actually, he speaks in such a way where it's just assumed God exists. We should know that. For now, though, he wants to shed us of our Typical safe answers are biblical little platitudes that we use all the time that we've been trained up maybe in Sunday school or from our, our Bible studies or in our small groups. He wants us to get rid of all that language and think almost like a skeptic. He's asking the dark secret question all of humanity has been asking based on simple empirical evidence, just what you see, what you notice in a life under the sun, life as it is, what you can see, taste, smell, hear, what do you get? What do you actually get from all the work that you're putting in? Based on what you just notice about this life, and it's fleeting, and it's unpredictable, puzzling, life like that, what do you actually get? What is the point of all of this? That's what Ecclesiastes is asking. What's the point of me? What in the heck is the point of you? Why are you here? And why are you bothering? What do you profit? What controllable progress are you actually making in any of your work and any of your efforts? Because let's face it, man, we work super hard, don't we? We work really hard. There must be a reason or a point or a hope of a gain somewhere. At a basic human level, from an earthly perspective, that's what he's getting at. This is what this under the sun. He's just speaking from a purely human, finite perspective. From a perspective of under the sun, it sure seems pointless. Shouldn't we be honest about that? That's what he's inviting us to consider. Now, to prove this point even further, he does a little thought experiment with you. 
And he looks at nature, human appetites, and achievements. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What does he mean? He means this. People will remember Mount Everest. They won't remember you. They won't. I'm sorry. You're wonderful, but they won't. I can prove it to you. Who is your great-great-great-grandfather? What was his name? Your great-great-great-grandmother. You're like, I know, because I've been on Ancestry.com. Okay, but even Ancestry.com only can go so far. The truth of it is, and we should just kind of laugh about it, you're not going to be remembered. Even if, you're, and even if you accomplish a ton, and you make a ton of money, and you put your building or your name on a building somewhere in, in memory of you and your great work, some day will come when the building's torn down. Or there'll be a day come where the name is there, but no one remembers who you are and what you've accomplished. Legacies are a big deal, but only for so long. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it just goes right back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around goes the wind on its circus, and its wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. He's saying, look at the busyness of the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, right? The rains, the rivers, all of it. It's all working. That's his perspective. He's looking at creation. He goes, man, there is so much busyness and work for what? And what is going on? I mean, these rivers dump. I lived at the mouth of a river that dumped into the ocean through college. Literally. I could see it out my window through college. Everything he's saying is true. The river just dumped constantly into the ocean. Never once in four years did I see that bay overfill. Where did it go? Where does all the water go? And you're like, you idiot, it evaporates. Exactly. It goes up into the sky to do what? Rain onto the mountains. And then it flows back into the river. And the cycle just repeats itself. For what purpose, he's saying? What actual progress, measurable progress, is it making? It's just got this endless cycle of repetition. There was a relentless repetition to the world around us. And it seemingly makes no progress. It's like the whole world around you is a lot like the Greek uh, Sisyphus who's been doomed to a life of rolling a boulder up a hill only to experience it fall back down, and then he just keeps doing it over and over and over again for the rest of eternity. That's life. That's what we see around us. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Like he's just tired. He's just tired from thinking about it all. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. You eat for nutrition, right? You eat and drink to get through the day, but only, you can only go so far and you wind back up at the table. What progress did you make? What are all these cycles of repetition going? Where is all the working that we're putting in, the preacher is asking, going? Nothing that he can see. What is the end? All of life, everything I do is a hamster wheel. I experience this on a trivial, uh, in a trivial way every single day. Every morning I wake up to my two, two-headed monster children and 
they come out of their rooms and they're screaming and I, I get my oldest one ready for school typically. And, you know, every, it doesn't matter, friends, because I'm in charge of this area in our home. I, no matter what I try to do for my little girl, her hair is a rat's nest every morning. And the bane of my existence is brushing that thing out. I mean, I have tried shampoo, conditioner. If you are an expert in this area, would you please help me? Because it is, it is a futile experience that I live with every single day, putting that thing in a ponytail where, there's no, and where she's not going to yell and scream at me from the knots as I brush them out. It's in, and it's just over and over and over, and nothing I can do. No measurable progress. You have things like this in your life, trivial things, but also bigger, deeper, more serious things that feel like this. Life is like a hamster wheel. Even when we succeed at something, in the end of the matter, the achievement wears off and we want something more. You're never filled up. You watch an amazing movie, an amazing movie, and then you don't go, I never need to see another movie again. No, you just keep wanting more, more food, more drink. You're never satisfied. You have three degrees, you want four. You make $30,000, you want 60. You make 100, you want 200. When is it enough? It's never enough. We're bottomless pits. That's what he's getting at. And then he goes further, verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be those who come after. I know that when you read this, it seems like a false statement to us, but is it? Sure, we've made improvements. We've created iPhones, incredible medicine. But what has humanity gained from all the observing and learning and our so-called progress, really? When you pull back the curtain on all our trinkets and our technologies, we haven't fixed the inevitable. You are born and then you die. And we have not changed that. No matter what. Everything that claims to be new, actually, is really just another Marvel movie dressed up in new clothes and new actors. The musing of verse 4 through 11 is essentially this. Face it, friends, the future cannot be controlled any more than the past can be fully remembered. What do you do about that? That's enough text for today. How are you doing? <laughs> are you all right? You're like, man, I, this was the holiday weekend. This was a Sunday I should have skipped. <laughs> it's a strange book, right? Can we just, even if that alone, like we just need to notice it's a super strange book in the Bible. If you've never read Ecclesiastes, you are now going, I cannot believe this is in the Bible. I mean, is this guy a secular skeptic? Is that what he is? Is he, is he just a pessimist? Because you're... Thoughtfully, honestly, you can read it and you go, man, this dude is like super depressing to be around. Is he just trying to sow doubt in you? Is he just trying to depress you? No, that's not his goal. He's a teacher. Really good teachers just tell you things. Really, really, really good teachers ask you questions and they make you think. And that's what he's doing. He's making you think. 
And he does this by asserting what he sees as self-evident truth. He's getting you to face realities. If all of your toil, all of your work, if all of your gain is what is in front of you in this life, if all of your work is what you can get under this sun based on what you see, no matter how great it is, if this life under the sun is all there is, it's hevel. That's what he's saying. It's smoke. It's vapor. It's pointless and it's boring. Why do it? Why, have, why say this? Why ask this? Why have this kind of sermon? Here's the question you should be asking. Does God approve of this kind of talk? Does God like this? Is he okay with this being in his canon? Did he slip up here? Because where's the good news, right? Where's Jesus? Where's, where's the plans of redemption and the great comfort and meaning that he infuses into us? Where is it? Because it's not in chapter 1. Here's what I would tell you, because I'm doing just really more preface for our series than I am preaching. He'll lead us there, but he'll do it in an indirect way, and we're not used to the indirect way. The preacher is what some guys call a negative theologian. He doesn't talk about the positives. He talks about the negatives to make you think. He'll lead us into the sovereignty and goodness of God only by first getting you to confront the grimness of the alternative. Did you catch that? He's going to lead you into the sovereignty and the goodness of God, a life of robust faith in God, by getting you to actually honestly stop pretending and face the grimness of the alternative. Because many of us don't do that. We don't really get honest about how we might be pretending of how we might be pretending about why we think we signed up for this whole Christianity thing. We need to be patient with this kind of thinking and questioning so that we can have its full effect. See, he knows, the preacher knows something that many of us don't know, especially many, many, many out in the church, and that's this. He knows we need a deeper honesty about life as we experience it if we're ever going to have a deeper conviction about God and living more faithful to him. Let me give you kind of a little, just a, an example of how this works. Years ago, I can remember talking to a friend of mine who was a firefighter in Cincinnati. We were rather young at the time, and we were newly kind of minted in our first careers, and he probably had been on the job only a year or so. And we were discussing how seldom he actually fights fires. <laughs> Is a fireman, he just doesn't really actually fight that many fires. Technology has just really helped in the area of fire suppression. And as we were discussing this and laughing about it, he said something like, it's fine, it's fine. I knew what I was signing up for. My, my first instructor lined us up early in training and shocked us by saying, quote, if you'd enrolled in this program in hopes that one day you'll get to fight fires, you should probably consider dropping out. That's not what we do here. And he went on to describe the many other tasks and duties that take up most of their time. Now, obviously, right? Obviously, firefighters do fight fires sometimes. But the instructor was using both brutal honesty with a little hyperbole to get them to adjust their expectations. Notice and be honest about their expectations. The instructor was instilling wisdom into them, I would say. Face reality as it really is. It's not helpful to pretend. 
And actually, if you're pretending, it will leave you, it will, you will end up in a place where you are bitter, incredibly frustrated, and living foolishly. See, the thing about it is, if I was to ask you, why did you become a Christian? I can consider, I, would, I imagine the kind of answers that you would give. And they're probably good, bright, biblical answers. But some of us need to take the time to do kind of a religious experiment and challenge our religious myths. Because the thing about it is, is that actually when you look at the vast majority of Christian culture, what I think is happening is people are living a life that looks like this, actually. They have signed up to be with God, to run after God, because underneath what's really going on is is they think that God is like an ingredient to their life that will give them their better life now. And what the preacher is doing is he's trying to expose that and to say, what if, what if, friend, that's not it at all? What if it's that you are an ingredient to God's life? And he's made you no such promises. Would you still follow him? And how do you know? How do you know which one you're dealing with? How do you know which one's underneath inside of you? Until you're willing to be honest about it and really do some reflection upon it. Like, have I just thought of God as an ingredient, like extra credit to give me the good job, the good family, the wonderful kids? the good retirement plan, the great friends, a healthy body, a long life. Is that what I've signed up to be with God for? In his book, Recovering Eden, the pastor, Zach Eswine, writes this, quote, looking under the sun for gain by our toil is like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. The shoe store really matters, but no medicine is found there. It is in the earth. So it is in the earth. Whether we move or stay, spend or save, nothing and no one can make our lives pay off or yield the return for which we hope. For all of its beauty and dignity, and there's plenty, right? The earth simply does not possess this ability. We refuse to believe this. You see, just like my friend's firefighter instructor, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is inviting us into honest evaluations of our expectations of this earth and our lives in them. What is it that you expect to get from the earth? We, have, we may have more pretending and foolish expectations than we realize. You see, it's like this. It's like saying, there's a risk in asking this, but it's like maybe there's a big hole inside of you, a really big hole, a longing that you can't quite articulate, a, a, a longing of for intimacy, meaning, purpose. You know, most, most theologians would say, or, and philosophers would say, people actually don't, when you study it, people don't fear death. They fear nothingness. What they really fear is not mattering and that there's nothing beyond. And what we're doing, maybe, just throwing that out there, this out there, maybe what we're doing to fill the hole, the great fear of nothingness inside of us, We're doing it by looking to find it here in the earth through our achievements, through our families, through our friends, through our whatever. We're desperately looking to things, find things to fill it. We may have more pretending and foolish foolish expectations of the earth than we realize. See, he does this in hopes 
that we discover through God helping us get honest that apart from God, we have nothing. If I say that to you and you go, yes, amen, that's true. But what he's doing is, is he's making you sit through some really uncomfortable thinking till you realize that that is absolutely true through your own discovery. Apart from God, friend, you have nothing. Nothing. And we do have God, by the way. It's true. He hasn't fixed every one of our frustrating realities under this sun. But he has come and subjected himself to them. You see, Jesus hasn't eliminated our sunburns and our sicknesses, but he's walked under the same conditions as you and me, and he is recovering this earth back to its perfect condition that he intended it to be. I think that Paul, even though he doesn't quote it exactly, I think Paul realized and discovered this through reading and studying Ecclesiastes and then experiencing Jesus, and then he writes Romans 8, and he speaks of the creation being subjected to futility waiting to be freed from its bondage. Where does he get ideas and language like that? Ecclesiastes. This idea that the earth is endlessly frustrating. It needs to be freed up. In the meantime, how should we live? What should we expect? That's what Ecclesiastes helps us understand. We might have great and wonderful things. We have family. We have friends. We have trinkets. We have earthly achievements, but it's all fleeting. It's unpredictable, man. And it's puzzling at times. And we can't expect them, and if we expect them, to fulfill us to the bottom and make this life feel worthwhile, we will end up endlessly frustrated. Here's the ironic wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Please, just, if you don't hear anything, hear this, because you need this. I need this. The ironic wisdom of Ecclesiastes is this. When we finally begin the process of dying to the expectation of being fulfilled in our earthly stuff and our earthly achievements, we will also begin to actually enjoy them as they were meant to be. Just gifts. This is the irony. In trying to extract meaning out of your kids, and trying to get mean, like all of your meaning from your kids, you end up not even being able to enjoy them. You're just mad at them all the time. Because they're not fulfilling you. By trying to find meaning in your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you end up endlessly frustrated. Endlessly frustrated. By, by, by trying to extract meaning out of your, your career and all of your achievements and your promotions, if you're trying to get meaning out of that, you end up not even being able to enjoy it. That's the irony, you see? The minute you start to realize, wait, this is not where I find meaning, you're freed up. There's this strange, honorable, and respectful detachment from it, where now you can enjoy it as it was meant to be, which is what? A gift from God. Is life about gain, or is life about gift for you? Taking it as it comes, receiving it, both the good and the bad, it is all from God. Gifts from God for your enjoyment, not the source of your ultimate gain. The more you recognize how fleeting, how unpredictable, and how limited everything is, the more you begin to simply just appreciate them, like the sunrise or the sunset. You can't put it in a bottle. I guess you can put it on your iPhone, but you can't control it. It's fleeting. It's there. 
and you can appreciate it. And you can appreciate it more because you know, well, it's going to go away in a few seconds. The same it is with a life. A life is fleeting. Enjoy it while it's there. Stop trying to cling so tightly to it with this angst. You'll never be present with anyone. You'll never be present in life. You'll be filled up, wound up with all these ways of trying to control it, trying to be God when you are not God. That's what living wisely under God's loving reign is like. It's not a life all wound up, taking everything in this life so serious that you live with a constant angst and worry, trying to control what cannot be controlled. You know, I think that's what Benjamin Shaw says, the lesson in Ecclesiastes is this. The, the preacher is saying, some of you are taking life way too serious. Way too serious. You're just, you're, you're, a bound, you're wound up, you're uptight, you're an anxious mess. And some of you don't take life serious at all. And all you do is play video games. And Ecclesiastes is saying, don't be wound up and don't be wasteful. Be wise. Be wise. Take life serious. Don't waste it. Think carefully about what you're doing. But don't be so serious that you live in a constant state of angst. And if you're like, well, what does that look like? Well, you should know, right? It's Jesus. This is exactly what you see in Jesus. Jesus wasn't either of these. He wasn't wasteful with his time here on earth. And he wasn't wound up living in an an uptight, worried life. He simply loved and enjoyed God and his neighbor with the time he was given. And in the end, gave his life to win us and win the earth back from all its sin and its frustration. So here's, as we come to the cup and we come to the bread, I want to just simply say this. As you take it this morning, drink and eat remembering this. Not just of the earth's frustrations, because the earth has plenty of them, and we should acknowledge that. But the one who came and suffered in it with us gave his life to free it from all its frustrations. And so this morning, I just don't, I don't know what any of this does. I get it. All the answers are not in the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes. What I would just tell you is this. Stick with the book. He wades through uncomfortable 12 chapters until he gets to the end to really kind of give some kind of an answer, and it's not even really an answer. (laughs) So you might be like, I'm going to hate this series. Eh. You'll be okay. You need it. You need it more than you know. Me too. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is our, the time of, the, of communion, the Lord's Supper. This little wafer at the top is Jesus' body. And, and you can take that out, drop it on your tongue. And the, the juice underneath is his blood that's shed. And this is for Christians. These are for people that are wrestling with how Jesus has loved them and freed them from the world's bondage and the world's sin. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're just super glad you're here. We're super glad you're here. And if you don't, 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 don't feel like this is something for you, and, and like don't feel pressure, you're not, no one's looking at you or anything like that. Instead, just take it in, ask questions, learn, try praying, come talk to us, those things. Thanks for coming, let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you.
And we ask that we are able to sit in the uncomfortable language of this book long enough for you to do your work. Let us be patient with it. Let our hearts be patient, enduring the hard questions, the questions that we actually really want to ask, like, what am I doing? What's all the suffering for? Why am I so bored? God, are you here? Do you even care? These are the questions I actually think are are worth us asking, God. Help us to ask them, and help us to remember that you're not mad at us for asking them, but that you want to take us somewhere. You don't want a naive people, and you don't want an angry, cynical people. You want a wise people. Help us be wise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.